John 20, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So far, the perfect word of God, may he bless to our hearts. It's hearing and now it's preaching. What do you believe? I ask you that every Sunday as part of our communion liturgy. I remind you that this before us is a table of faith for a people of faith. And so I ask you about That faith, what faith are you bringing to the table? What do you believe? To hear the world talk about it, faith is a pretty nebulous thing. As much a feeling as it is a belief. It's a desire or a conscious choice to live day to day as if things will turn out okay in the end. And religious faith is just that. And then the broad expectation that God will accept as good enough what we do to get into his heaven. This subjective, wishy-washy description of faith is completely foreign to the scriptures. In the Bible, faith is belief in specific facts and promises. It's an identifiable conviction to believe that these certain things are true 
That's what it is to have faith. One person cannot be 100% certain that another has faith. But nonetheless, anyone who desires can be 100% certain as to what the Christian faith is. This Christian faith exists in an unbroken line with what the Old Testament calls faith as well. The underlying beliefs are the same for each testament. Both require the acceptance of Yahweh as God and all that he has revealed as truth. Both require us to order our lives around those truths. Both involve hope, the assurance that he will do all he has said he will do. And both, in their own time in redemptive history, were powerful enough to save. What we're seeing in this morning's passage is the evolution of faith brought about by the new redemptive age. What Mary and the disciples believed on Friday was sufficient to save. It's what saved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the prophets, John the Baptist, all the godly men and women of the Old Covenant. But now, on Sunday, that faith is insufficient. A new redemptive era has dawned. Mary, having told Peter and John of the missing body, now returns to the tomb on her own. And we can tell from the questions she's, asks, she's asking that she hopes she can find someone who will tell her where Jesus' body can be found. She's grieving. Jesus' death, and now his stolen body. And in that grief, crying, she stoops to peer in the tomb. Maybe she was mistaken. Maybe the body will be there after all. But where the body was before are now two angels, apparently in the form of young men wearing the blazing white garments that symbolize angelic visitors, and in this case symbolize the triumph of light over darkness. And we shouldn't be surprised to find angels here. As one scholar writes, heaven takes a vital interest in Christ's resurrection. The absence of angels would have been surprising. So there are angels, and they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Now what they mean, their emphasis, is on weeping. This isn't a time for weeping. This is a time for rejoicing. But Mary can't hear that. Her response is dictated by what she believes. And she does not yet believe in a risen Lord. She believes in a stolen body. And all she wants to know is where it can be found. Perhaps she turned away from them so they wouldn't see her tears. Perhaps she heard a sound behind her. But either way, she turns and she sees a man standing there. And so consumed is she with the one thought, where is the body, that she cannot see who is standing right in front of her. As another pastor puts it, she had not been looking for Jesus. She had been looking for a corpse. Not someone, but something. And he asks her the same question. 
Why are you weeping? And then, whom are you seeking? But her hope, shown in her response, is not in a risen Savior. It's that this gardener might know where the body was taken. You see, Mary's faith was sufficient for Friday, but not for Sunday. Until Jesus performs a miracle. He calls her by name and grants her this new faith. Faith in the risen Savior. Now we should not be at all surprised by the method he would use to perform this miracle, to give her faith. John told us that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and that the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mary, Jesus says, a name and a voice that she had heard many times. And so she turns to him, Rabboni, and embraces him. This embrace can be assumed from Jesus' reaction. And through it, we learn something about how Mary's faith must adapt to the new covenant. You see, when she saw him raised and heard her own name, she rejoiced to think that things could go back to how they were before. When she was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, when she had fellowship with the incarnate Christ, and so she holds on to him. But Jesus was not raised to restore some of his people to earthly fellowship. Jesus was raised to ascend to the Father and so to unite himself with all of his people, the church, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He can't stay. Mary can't cling to him. Because trying to keep him here is antithetical to the belief that God will do what he said he would do in calling all his people to himself. No, Mary's new life by this new faith must be oriented around proclaiming the risen Savior. And this she should begin, Jesus says, by going to tell his brothers. Now can I pause there for a minute? It is a stunning use of that term. Brothers. Jesus had already been calling his disciples friends, which itself was powerful enough. Don't you want to be known as a friend of God? But now in this new relationship that Jesus will forge in his people by the Spirit, he calls them brothers. Jesus says to Mary that he goes to my father and to your father, he a son by nature, and Mary, like us, a child by adoption. And when we wonder if God could possibly accept us, we ought to remember that Jesus himself called us brothers and sisters, that we have Christ, our common sibling, by faith. And this is why, while we love all our neighbors, we must care especially for those who belong to the household and family of God. Mary goes to tell the disciples, and they do nothing. <laughs> At least nothing that John reports. But the next scene is that night 
Sunday night, which John emphasizes throughout the passage. Some of Jesus' closest followers felt the need that night to assemble, probably to talk about all that had taken place. There's weird stuff going on. Mary had spoken with Jesus, reported her conversation to at least some of the twelve. By this point, Jesus had also appeared to the other women, and to Cleopas and his companion, and to Peter, but not to everyone. So you can understand why they'd want to get together and talk things through. What's going on? Judas was absent for obvious reasons. Thomas was absent for unknown reasons. But the disciples are still referred to as the twelve. I guess the ten doesn't quite have the ring to it. And Luke tells us that there were some other followers of Jesus invited to attend this meeting. It wasn't just the ten formal disciples. What do you think the mood was like in the room? For some, certainly sorrow. But not complete sorrow, because others, others who we trust, say they have seen him. Is there hope? Is there faith? Faith in what? Despite the locked door, suddenly Jesus appears. He had no trouble with the grave cloths that wrapped around him, nor the stone or seal at the tomb. So likewise, walls and a locked door are no match for the risen Lord. We don't know how it happened, but as Paul told the Corinthians, what is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. It's sown as a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. So all I can tell you is one day we'll know. We'll have one for ourselves. I'm sure a movie version of Jesus' resurrection would have him appear in the room and say something really clever. I'm back, or I told you so. It would be on the movie poster. Here's Jesus. But Jesus has more important work to do. He's here to save and bless his people. So he says instead, peace. Peace. Another preached of this, that Jesus' peace on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. The peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted to them. It does, as they now believe in the risen Lord, belong to them. The work which was finished and the fruit of that work now bestowed on those who believe. And then he does with them the same thing that he did with Mary. Not call them by name, but prove to them that he is risen. Give them faith in the risen Lord. He shows them his hands and his side. He proves to them that it's really him in the flesh. This was no mere spiritual resurrection of liberalism. This was the conquering of death, a bodily resurrection. And that, verse 20 tells us, made them glad. Now that might sound silly, trivial, quite the understatement. But think about the things that make you glad. Glad is an interesting word because it includes elements of both happy and willing. Glad is supposed to mean the kind of eagerness that comes from thankfulness and delight. So yeah, I guess if I consider the risen Christ, glad is exactly what I ought to be. Happy and willing. 
And glad is the right posture for receiving what Jesus says next. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now, there's so much theological significance in these three verses, in this exchange, that a reasonable preacher would offer a sermon on just those three verses. But that has never been me. So I'm just going to summarize them for the sake of time. To understand these verses, you, you need to remember a few important facts. First, remember what I said, that the ten disciples are both the primary audience for what Jesus says, and they're not the only people in the room. There's a broader group of disciples here. Also, remember that John's gospel was written around 30 years after these events. So John, as an author, can safely assume that his readers already know about Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the church. So verses 21 through 23 then read as a commissioning ceremony. It's a commissioning of disciples and all those who will come to faith by the disciples' witness. Those who have faith in the risen Lord are commissioned to spread the news of the risen Christ, to gather the saints and build the church. And Jesus promises that they will not have to do this by their own power, but that they will be given the Holy Spirit to equip them for this work, not actually here, but soon at Pentecost. And this is, as in Matthew 16 and 18, a grant of authority, particularly to the leaders of the church, in this case the disciples, as they perform that work by the power of the Spirit. That verse 23 is given in totally passive voice is meant to highlight that God is the one at work giving belief and forgiving sin. But the officers of his church in evangelism here, as in church discipline in Matthew, have the authority by the power of the Holy Spirit to discern when true faith and therefore true forgiveness is present. These disciples and all who follow them in faith are commissioned to continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Spirit he sends. Now that is quite a way to think about what we're doing here in church, isn't it? In evangelism, as we share our faith, as we live lives that point others toward Jesus, as a church, as we worship in truth, and grow by grace and live as disciples, we are continuing the ministry of Jesus. He's saying to the room, here's the ministry that I've done and the power by which I've done it, and you continue that ministry by the same power which I will send you in the Spirit. What a privilege. <laughs> what a responsibility. Don't get me wrong. But what a privilege to continue the ministry of Jesus. Now, this passage ends with the story of doubting Thomas. And I agree with the many scholars who complain that Thomas has gotten a bad rap. Jesus does with Thomas the same thing he did with Mary and the other disciples. He imparts faith by convincing them of the resurrection. He transforms the faith that was sufficient for Friday into the faith that is sufficient for Sunday. 
Thomas is just the one who said out loud that he could not believe something so glorious without seeing it for himself. One scholar comes to his defense this way. The rubric doubting Thomas is not entirely fair. Had Thomas been present that first Sunday, doubtless he too would have believed. Why he was not present, we'll never know. But in the providence of God, his absence and subsequent coming to faith have generated one of the great Christological confessions in the whole New Testament. When, Jesus, when Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, there is literally nothing quite like it in the New Testament. So yes, the other disciples come to tell Thomas they've seen the risen Lord, and Thomas doesn't believe. He wasn't there. He didn't receive the peace that Jesus gave them when he came into the room. And he's too despondent to believe. He's too hurt. He's too sorrowful. What they're saying would be great. But don't you find sometimes that what is great is often just too good to be true? They say that Jesus was raised, that his body lives again. And to believe that, Thomas will need to touch this body himself. And so that's what Jesus gives him. The next Sunday night, they're back in the upper room again with the door locked. But this time, Thomas is there. And once again, Jesus appears. What he says in verse 27 is nearly word for word identical to what Thomas demanded in verse 25. Thomas says he wants to see his hands. Jesus says, here, here are my hands. Thomas says he has to put his finger and his hand on Jesus' body, on the wounds. And Jesus says, bring them over. Put your hand and finger here. And Thomas says, without this, I definitely will not believe. And Jesus says, now you can stop your unbelief. Every one of Thomas's demands are met by a patient and loving Christ. And he does not rebuke him. He brings him to faith by causing him to believe in the resurrection. And does he ever believe? He utters the most important claim of the New Testament. My Lord and my God. He uses words here that had previously been reserved only for Yahweh himself. Words uttered in Old Testament faith, in the Old Covenant. But Thomas's faith is no longer just in God's promises. His faith is in Jesus' resurrection. And that's the heart of what happens in each one of these scenes in this morning's text. Prior to the resurrection, faith was the belief in the promises of God. Believe that he is God and that he will save. Mary, the disciples, Thomas, they were believers before. And for the time before, that faith was enough to save. But the resurrection changes everything. And until they believed in the resurrection, they were not properly Christians. You cannot be saved in this era of redemptive history without the firm conviction that Jesus was raised. Kids, this is the most important thing you will ever know. 
And it's to our shame as adults and parents, particularly to my shame, that even though this is the most important thing you will ever know, it's not what I spend the most of my time talking about to my children. I teach. As parents, we lecture. When we're mad, we yell about obedience, about godly actions and behavior. We spend our time talking to you about making good decisions and staying out of trouble. And what would be better, what would be more true, would be if we focused our attention on this. He is risen. What would be better would be if you grow up and you leave this church and you leave the home of your parents never doubting for a moment. He is risen. It's the most important thing you could ever believe. And all that other stuff, which is good, the obedience, the godliness, the kindness, the fruits of the spirit, all that other stuff flows from genuinely believing that he is risen for you, just as it does for us. It's the fruit of faith. The only reason I ever love my wife well in any moment is that I believe he is risen. The only reason that I ever do anything that brings glory to God or produces fruit, good fruit in the world is because I believe that he is risen. Don't go through life asking yourself what will keep me out of trouble. Don't go through life asking yourself What will win my parents' approval or my friends' approval? Go through life asking yourself every single day, what should I think and feel and do in a world where I know for a fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? That's a life worth living. Because we don't get what Thomas got. We don't get to put our fingers in his nail-scarred hands. Or to put our hands in his spear-pierced side. We don't get that. But that doesn't mean we can't believe. It means, as Jesus said in verse 29, that we are more blessed in our believing. Faith in the risen Christ is what we need to be saved and to be blessed. It's Jesus' terms of blessed, not ours. Blessed is not simply happy. Blessed in the New Testament is happy because we are accepted by God. Happy because we know he will never leave nor forsake us. He will never go back on his promises. He will never fail to do what he told us he will do. He will never cast us out. He will never fail to forgive our sins when we confess them. That's blessed. Not happy because we're oblivious. Happy because we are accepted by God. Accepted into his family. By the resurrection, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and of Christ. Our faith is not vague or nebulous. We don't simply wish for good in the future. We hope in God's promises, certain hope 
because he is risen.